You're listening to Lead to Soar, bringing women the best career advice and mentorship from around the world. Lead to Soar is a production of A Career That Soars. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Lead to Soar podcast. If you're a returning listener, thank you so much for joining us again today. And for new folks out there, welcome. Lead to Soar is a production of A Career That Soars, which is an organization founded by Susan Colantuno that is built all around helping women advance in their careers and reach their highest ambitions. So if that sounds like something for you, we'd love for you to check us out over at acareerthatsoars.com. All right, so for folks that are returning, you know that we work from Susan's three-part definition of leadership. Leadership is using the greatness in you to achieve and sustain extraordinary outcomes by engaging the greatness in others. So that part in the middle, achieving and sustaining extraordinary outcomes, another way to talk about that is business strategic and financial acumen. And this, what we call the missing 33%, is typically where women are not given the advice, guidance, and mentorship that they need to advance in their career. And so today's episode is part of that missing 33%. What we're going to talk about is business financial acumen. So I'm going to be asking Michelle Redburn some questions, and she's going to give us uh, just a really fantastic breakdown of some of the financials of business, the basics. She's going to break it down for us. So stay with us, and we're going to dive right in. Michelle, to another episode of Lead to Soar. How are you? Very well, thank you, Mel. Lovely to talk to you again. It's great to talk to you too. And I think this is probably one of our favorite topics. We're going to talk about money today. Hell yeah. So we want everybody, of course, to get paid what they deserve. And, you know, I just want to acknowledge here at the front that Oftentimes, it feels a little taboo for women to embrace if they have an ambition to make money. And with us, inside a career that soars, you can embrace your ambition, whatever it looks like, including around money. 100%. And um, I'm not going to quote her verbatim right now, but um, Cindy Gallup, who is someone I follow uh, avidly has uh, has got an amazing quote, very long quote, which I've just recently posted on my LinkedIn. And she wants women to be ma- able to make a S ton, F ton of money. So you don't even have to bleep me now, Mel, because we deserve it. And that's what we are all about in a career that soars is saying, you know, there's, I had this conversation with Rhonda, my wife on the weekend, and we were talking about people who go, oh, look, it's, you know, I I don't need that much money. It won't change my life. And I go, well, give it to me because it will change mine and it will change the life (laughs) of other women. So I'll have it. Thanks very much. Oh gosh. Um, So, you know, I'm, I'm very, very, I'm of, of a generation or of 
of a generation of parents who it was very, very impolite and vulgar for, for young ladies to talk about money. So um, I have had to unlearn a whole bunch of stuff about attitudes towards money, attitudes towards ambition. So my unlearning continues. But yeah, in a career that soars, we are about unashamedly applauding and encouraging and enabling ambitious women to have the career that they deserve, to earn the money that they deserve and that they want, and to feel very, very comfortable in their own skin being like that. Absolutely. And so there's two sort of paths in the discussions around money, right? There's the practical day-to-day what you need for yourself, for your health care, to care for your children, to be able to retire on. And those are real concerns that, especially if you're sitting stateside where your ability to retire is completely contingent on you and how you save and manage your money, this is an important topic. But then also for what we're really about in a career that soars, helping women achieve their highest ambitions. If you want to make it to the top of organizations, you've got to understand what's going on with the business financially and be able to help move the company where they're trying to go. We're going to discuss money today from the nexus of some of your experience, Michelle. So let's let's start there. Tell us about your experience particularly when you had that narrative in your head when you were younger that says, oh, I'm just not that good with numbers. What was mm. going on for you then and what what changed in your career? So there was a, the, a couple of things going on. So interestingly enough, and, and interviewing Joe Thomas last week for Career Q&A made me recall that at school I was quite good at maths. And so... I wonder how this stuff came about. But anyway, so fast forward through my career, I I think I know that I certainly had jobs that, and particularly in my leadership career, that played to my strengths. And certainly my strengths, like a lot of other women, my strengths that were noticed by bosses were engaging the greatness in others. You're so great with people, Michelle. You're a great communicator. Gee, you're a great leader. People follow you. I am charismatic, I am confident, so that kind of stuff. But I I didn't have a lot of internal or external narrative around achieving and sustaining extraordinary outcomes from a financial perspective. Now, the context that I used to tell myself was because I worked in such a large organisation for the formative part of my career, the first part for 15 years in Telstra, I didn't have access to a P&L. The closest I got to kind of working out and you know interestingly I'm going to go back to the stories we tell ourselves Mel because when I look back I think I was always in contact centers which is where I spent a large amount of my time metrics are really important you know grade of service adherence to schedule um, average handling time customer satisfaction so lots and lots of metrics and also unit cost so interestingly enough I was immersed in numbers for a long, long time. But I had this story that I told myself that I wasn't very good with numbers. So, you know, I look back and I think I was because it was my job every single day from the age of about 22 onwards. So, but then 
I guess it really came to the fore when, uh, and some of you will have heard me talk about this story, when I catapulted myself out of Telstra after 15 years and into the private sector. And my my first job with an outsourced contact centre company made me realise that I had been, whilst I was probably okay, um, faking it. I could no longer fake it when it came to, frankly, financial numeracy or, or financial acumen because I was suddenly confronted with the requirement as, as being an executive to understand profit and loss, balance sheet, cash flow uh, and complex pricing models and budgeting, which I had not really been exposed to in the large corporation that I had been in. I'd done bits and pieces and so, but instead of collapsing in a big heap, when I was confronted with this, oh my God, they think I'm smarter than I actually am. Holy crap, what am I going to do about that? I thought, well, this is my job and I actually have to know this stuff. And instead of skillfully avoiding it, which I've got to say, I've seen people skillfully avoid stuff they don't like to do for years and years and years, but it will derail you eventually. I went, all right, so I need to number one, be authentic and vulnerable enough to say to someone I trust, guess what? I don't understand this profit and loss. Now, fortunately, that person was my partner, is my partner, and she is an accountant, CFO. And so I had a I had a financial person in my home. And I remember one of our first conversations, um, I said, so, and I'm looking at the P&L, and she said, Misha, what, the first thing I want you to know is this is not real money. This is, this is management account. This is reporting. And she said, real money is cash. Real money is cash flow. This is the stuff that makes businesses start, stop and disintegrate. So anyway, long story short, I spent six months, six very intensive months with her, with every single pricing model, p &L, you know, every bit of information I could get hold of getting her to coach me through it and how to do it, even to the point of learning how to do read Excel properly and read formulas and and, and things like that. And then I, I did some more. So anyway, that's enough for the time being, but yeah. So I, I want to talk about this at a high level to bring some clarity in for our listeners. So let's back up for a moment and remind our listeners that our definition of leadership using the greatness in you to achieve and sustain extraordinary outcomes by engaging the greatness in others, the missing 33% is the part in the middle, achieving and sustaining extraordinary outcomes. And putting that in other words, we call that using your business strategic and financial acumen. So we're talking about financial acumen today. And yep. when we have a peek into no ceiling, no walls, there is a financial acumen section and Susan wrote financial acumen means being able to understand the story that the numbers tell and to take appropriate action strategic and or tactical in response to the story. So Michelle, I'm wondering if it might be helpful if you could talk a bit more about as you got into this role as an executive and realized that you had to learn this and you you had to be able to use it what kind of things did you did you learn at that point and how did it help you 
be a better leader in that role? So the things, thanks Mel, the things that that I learned were that inherently I'd kind of been doing it already. I just didn't have words or names for stuff, for decision-making that. So I had quite strong, in fact, I I did, I, I had very strong business acumen, very strong commercial acumen. So I knew that when you put A or one and one together, it makes two. And then as a result of that, you pull this lever to create a better outcome for the organization. But I was, I would say I was very tactical about that. I wasn't necessarily strategic. So looking longer term and really thinking, well, okay, what are the things that I can do today to you know, create some really good runway for financial outperformance for the organisation. So things that I did, the very practical things that I did, apart from having intensive coaching with my partner, was I remember we had this amazing management accountant at UCMS where I worked and his name was Safet and Safet was so good. He was so generous to me and I asked him to, to step me through stuff. And I would ask him to explain things to me. And, but you know what? I got really, really interested. And the more my interest grew, and the more I understood about the nuances of the various financial reports or the pricing models and what have you, the more I realized how much control or how much, how much I could influence the outcomes for the organization, how much better my decision making was going to be, but also how much more confident and credible I was in environments where people were expecting me to be confident and credible. So I started believing the stuff that was coming out of my own mouth instead of going, oh God, I hope they don't think, I hope they don't ask me another question because I got no idea what I'm talking about. I became so much more confident. And we talk about confidence in the context of women so often, but you know, when you really know your stuff and and I didn't, I'm no accountant, I've never claimed to be one, but I shifted, my mindset shifted from one of how can I possibly avoid this to, to at all costs, being numbers and what have you, to I am super interested and somewhat nerdishly fascinated with some of this stuff because I know that's going to help me when I do a pitch to a client, when I talk to ops about things that they might want to think about doing differently. And I just felt my confidence and self, I felt self-assured and probably the most confident I'd felt for a long, long time. So I use the resources around me, both at work uh, and at home. And none of that involved going off and doing a finance course, which I had been tempted to do, finance for non-finance managers and what have you. But I was embedded in it every single day and it was a really great way. The point here, Mel, is I shifted my own mindset. I went, you know what? No longer. I can no longer avoid this. I am not saying to myself anymore, I'm just not good with numbers and I'll I'll surround myself with people who are. I'm going to learn this and I'm going to work out where my gaps are after I've learned what I need to know and then I get people around me. But, you know, as it turned out, I was, again, surprised myself that I was a hell of a lot more competent than I'd given myself credit for. And as it turns out, I'm now very, very interested in numbers. Very, very interested. And it served me very well. I run my own businesses, so I I have to be. But um, yeah, so it was that mindset shift. You're listening to Lead to Soar, a production of A Career That Soars. 
A Career That Soars, or ACTS, is an organization, a networking platform, and a place for career women to learn and connect. Our founder, Susan Colantuno, envisioned a group that would embrace women from all backgrounds and support one another towards achieving their highest career ambitions. Learn more about what you can get from ACTS by visiting leadtosoar.com and clicking the ACTS link. is that uh, a bunch of our listeners aren't quite there yet. So do you think it would be useful next if we talked a little bit about some of the main terms and why they're yep. important? All right, let's yep. let's go down through some of the things that uh, we would highlight for you in a career that soars. Start with the income statement, the profit and loss statement. Yeah, so the, the P&L income statement um, is often what will be the most evident to most people, to, to many people in an organisation or elements of it. So if in my time at Telstra, I would often only see the cost side because we didn't see the revenue. So I had cost centres. So I was very good at managing cost, as it turned out, which, of course, I didn't recognise at the time. So essentially it is there are only a couple of elements here. There's how much revenue you book, so your sales, how much money is coming in from your customers, minus the costs of running the business. Now, there are all sorts of different levels, but essentially, what are your costs? So revenue minus costs equals profit. And that is a profit and loss statement. Now, there are going to be a whole bunch of different levels within that so that you, you'll hear terminology like gross margin, um, contribution margin, net profit, EBIT, EBITDA, things like that. And, you know, those are, are simply layer upon layer within that statement. But what we want you to do if you want to build your financial acumen is start looking at the PL. Now, if you can't get hold of the PL in your organisation, and sometimes you won't be able to, very, very large organisations won't necessarily have that. But if you're a listed, part of a listed company, you will have a macro version or go and look at just Google profit and loss statement and you will come up with literally millions of examples. But one of the best websites that I've ever found, and, you know, it gets poo-pooed a little bit, but it's Investopedia. And Investopedia was very useful to me during my learning phase and then during my MBA when I was doing corporate finance because it gives very, very layperson's terms breakdowns of stuff and everything from, well, anything to do, well, you can see Investopedia, anything to do with finance in organisations. So if you hear terminology, be curious. So you think, oh, someone's just talked about the the GM or the, you know, the gross margin or the contribution margin or the you know, they've talked about depreciation and amortisation and you think, all right, I don't want to ask about it here. Write it down and then go and Google it. Being curious and, you know, let's face it, this now we have so much information at our fingertips that we can self-learn. Google it, figure out what it is you still don't know and then go and find who one of the people that should be your 
best friends at work, which is your finance partner, and say, hey, finance partner, I'm really curious to learn more about the way we make money in this organisation. Here's what I've learned and here's what I'm not 100% sure about. Can I buy you a coffee and, or a virtual Zoom or a virtual coffee on Zoom? Can we step through it? I've never known a finance partner who doesn't want to talk about how to be better at finance in an organisation. So these are simple things that you can do. The next one on the list is statement of retained earnings or equity statement. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So this, again, for listed, for folks who are working in listed companies, you will see all of this in the annual report. And if you're working for a listed company, I highly recommend that you subscribe to your investor relations emails and that you read the annual report that your company issues to its shareholders. Now, Statement of retained earnings is quite simply the stuff that's left over after the shareholders have received their dividends, if a dividend is going to be paid. So the company books revenue, takes out all the costs, there's profit from that, they pay taxes, they then pay dividend out of that pool that's left, they then pay, may pay, don't have to, but may pay dividends to their shareholders. And then they will say, we're going to retain some earnings. So quite simply, if you think about it in terms of the your own money, you get a wage, you take out the cost, so you pay your rent or your mortgage and your food and all that kind of stuff. You've already paid your taxes you put some away, you know, you put some savings away. So that's your, your dividend. And then you might say, well, okay, I've got a little bit left over. Where am I going to invest it? Am I going to hold it for a rainy day? Am I going to invest it in a new piece of equipment? I might need a new Mac or I might need a new computer or some, you know, this, that and the other. So companies do exactly the same. They say, all right, we've got all of this stuff. So we've got to pay our bills, pay our taxes, pay our shareholders. Now we're going to keep some left over and we're going to do some stuff with that and this and it gets held on the balance sheet and without going into too much detail they will then say we might invest that so it grows so we're going to get some return on it they might invest it in stocks shares property whatever it may be they may put it away for a rainy day you know you'll see provisions for all sorts of different things Essentially, they're putting it away to say we're going to do something with that that those leftover earnings that will help the company grow, and it can take a myriad of different formats. But essentially, it's it's leftover money to do stuff with for the organisation. Thank you for explaining that. We've got two more statements we want to walk through really quick. The next one is the statement of financial position or the balance sheet. This is yep. where we see assets and liabilities and equity. Talk to us about that. So the balance sheet is every one of us individually has a balance sheet, what we own, what we owe, and then what's left over. You know, that minus out. So I always think of ALO, A-L-O-E. So assets minus liabilities equals owner's equity. So what you own minus what you owe equals what you've got, you know, basically equity. If you are a homeowner, for example, you're, you know, let's say you've got a house that's worth $500,000, you owe the bank $400,000, what's left over is your equity, your owner's equity, which is $100,000. A business is exactly the same. There are all sorts of different categories and things like that. And, and look, I won't get into 
current assets versus long-term assets and fixed and liabilities and and all that kind of stuff. But the bottom line is that it is the business has exactly what you have. It owns stuff, it owes stuff or has liabilities. And what's left over is, well, essentially the equity that, that the owners have in that company. Now, the balance sheet is important for owners and potential owners, particularly around listed companies. There are all sorts of different ratios that are assigned by market analysts and investment groups and sectors around the health of a company. And it, it will it will vary. So you'll hear about highly leveraged organisations, which is a fancy word for saying they own a lot of money. So their assets to liabilities ratio and so, so analysts will look at that. And it's the same as if your bank would look at you to say, would we give you some more money if you own that home for $500,000, but you owe $490,000? Probably not because you're highly leveraged and you haven't Your got debt a lot of to income equity. ratio. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And again, that left, remember we talked about the owners or the leftover earnings. Again, that is also looked at. Now, there's, it's a really interesting one because too much cash on the balance sheet is called a lazy balance sheet because investors want to know that that leftover cash is earning or is working hard uh, to grow the company. So too much doing nothing is something that, that analysts will look at. Too little not doing anything is also something because you go, well, okay, gee whiz, we've got a global pandemic coming. Not that we knew that. How much have we got there put away for a rainy day? And a lot of organisations, particularly as we navigated that first six or so months of the global pandemic, ran out of money. They, they had no nothing to fall back on. They had nothing or not enough put away for a rainy day. The sporting sector in particular, and I know here in Australia, was impacted really hard because they very much a, arguably a hand-to-mouth existence. So, you know, your sporting organisation, a lot of them, you, you will have heard that please pay your membership even though we can't get you to a game because we kind of need the money to keep paying wages when our revenue is not coming in. So anyway, so those ratios are really important external markers of the performance and the health of an organisation. And then last on the statements list that we want to talk about is the cash flow statement. Tell us about and I've got that. to tell you, if 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 you do nothing else, learn about cash because that was one of my first big lessons. As I said, cash is queen. When companies run out of cash, they go out of business. I've quoted this before in Australia. Now I must check my data because this is a couple of years old, but we have a 49% of businesses stop being businesses within two years here in Australia. Now, there'll be all sorts of different reasons, but a lot of it is because they simply run out of cash. So you can be booking a lot of revenue, okay? You've got to, so on your P&L, you can say, hey, here's all my revenue I've booked and there's all the costs and look at that profit. But if that cash hasn't come into your bank account, it is meaningless. So an example would be, in my own business, let's say I send out a whole bunch of invoices for the work that I do. Awesome. That looks really good, really healthy business, right? But I'm also at the same time paying my wages, paying the costs of running my business, paying the people who work for me, the, you know, all the subscriptions and platform, blah, 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 you know, all my costs. So I'm paying those. Now, what if my clients don't pay me? Where's the money that 
you know, the outgoings are still going out, the incoming. So that money hasn't come in. So that cash hasn't come into my bank account. So it, it, it's the same as folks who live on credit cards at some point. Right. Pay. Right. And so this is something that if you work in a business that's similar to where I work, I work in professional services, I work in engineering consulting. So at a more micro level, we would see this when we negotiate contract terms with our client. And what are the payment terms? Are they absolutely net 30? Are they yep. Net 90, which means that they could pay as far out as 90 days without incurring, say, a fee or interest associated with that. Well, mm -hmm. that kind of term is not great for the the business receiving that, right? It's not yep. good for the, for the cash flow. No, because in that 90 days, well, Mel, I don't know about you, but no one really likes to go to work and not get paid. So you would be yep. going to your business, pay me. And they're going, but with the client hasn't paid us yet. And you'd go, hey, seriously, that's your problem. Pay me. I've done my work. So really important that for folks in the sales area or business development or client management, you may have noticed that your finance people are going, hey, Mel, can you get onto so-and-so and get them to pay their bill, please? Oh, gee, that's a really hard conversation to talk to my valued client about pay your damn bill. It's important because your finance manager knows that the wages still have to be paid, the rent for the property still has to be paid, yada, yada, yada. We want your client to bring that cash in so that we are not either dipping into all of our cash reserves or overusing our debt facility. Because of course, when you use debt, debt is more expensive money because you're paying someone else to use their money. So organisations are managing that the finance people are managing the inflows and the outflows of cash very, very carefully to make sure that you don't incur extra cost or go out of business. So for salespeople, yeah, when you're doing the contract, make sure the terms, the payment terms, uh, you always run them by your finance partner and that you've got, you know, those if you've got wages that are paid every fortnight, but your clients aren't going to pay, are you going to pay you every 30 to 60 days? You're going to go, okay, so how do we manage that? Now, there's, there's all sorts of things around working capital and, and things like that you can do, but make sure that you're really, that you're aware of this stuff when you start to negotiate. Do you want to get shit done for your career? Well, I suggest that you join the Get Shit Done experience in a career that soars. The GSD experience is for women who want to take time out of their full lives to reconnect with themselves, their ambition, they want to kickstart their what's next career plan, plus connect and expand their network of driven and ambitious women. Put simply, the GSD experience is for women who are ambitious and driven. Women who want an accountability partner to give them a kick in the butt when needed. Women who want to supercharge their motivation and confidence. And women who want to either define or make their next big move. Join us over at A Career That Soars for the Get Shit Done experience. For those of you who are not in sales, where does this matter? 
This is when our straight through processing, so quality control, lean manufacturing, um, you know, all of those things that speed up the time from a product being produced to in the customer's hand to when the customer pays you and get that money gets in the bank. All of those processes are about making sure that cash flow is also optimised. So don't think that you don't have a role in, in the management of cash if you're not in sales. You do. Absolutely. In a career that soars and in no ceiling, no walls, we talk about this sort of trifecta of cash growth and return. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. So cash is essentially, so so cash is days cash on hand. So in any organisation, if you stopped booking revenue today, the organisation will have, I hope, cash reserves they will have a period of time that they can run without any further injection of cash. Now, no company can run forever without an injection of cash. So again, for different industries, different sectors, there are are different kind of metrics that we look, how many days cash on hand. So when we talk about that's what we're talking about with cash. We're also talking about cash to debt ratio. So if you've got Again, uh, your owner's equity or your part of your owner's equity is cash held at bank. So it's $100,000. Your property's worth $500,000 and you've got a loan of $200,000. You know, that's the, those, those ratios are looking pretty good. Business is the same. And again, you know, accounts receivable. So how many of those invoices are out waiting to be paid? So accounts receivable. We want invoices generated, sent out and paid. So those are the kind of things when we talk about cash, those are the things that you can pay attention to in your organisation. So, But cash is at the top of our, our triangle because cash is queen. It makes the business happen. Growth is we want all organisations want profitable growth. There will be times when organisations will make strategic decisions to to grow in a non-profitable way for a period of time, but I'm not going to kind of talk about that. But Growth is growth in revenue, growth in customers. So if you look at your profit and loss, you can see the top line is is revenue. So we want it going up, you know, um, upward trajectory. So you will see that as one indicator of growth. We also want to see profitable growth. So if you see costs going up at the same trajectory or greater than revenue, this is not profitable growth. Yes, we might have top line growth, but if your costs are also going up and exceeding the growth rate of your revenue, that's not great. What we want to see is costs staying the same or preferably going less. And we call it jaws. So we want very wide open jaws. Think about a great big shark. The top top jaw is revenue. The bottom jaw is cost. And we want those jaws big, open and wide. We don't want them closing together. And then we also see growth in where there's all sorts of different ways that the companies can grow acquire more customers acquire more businesses all sorts of different ways but at the end of it we want the growth to be profitable because growth without profit is well it's not sustainable for any organization and then return is quite simply it's profit times velocity. Now, it kind of gets a bit convoluted here, but essentially you've got revenue minus cost is profit. 
And I always use the example of if I made big pens and I make big pens for one cent, but I sell them for $1, that means that I've got, also oh, I sell them for a dollar one. That helps me with my mental arithmetic. So I, I, I make big pens. They cost me one cent to make and I sell them to you. I sell a pen to you, Mel, for $1 and one cent. So that means for every big pen, I've made $1 profit. Awesome. So how many times do I want to make that in a day? Do I want to sell one big pen at $1 profit? Or do I want to sell a million big pens at a million dollars profit? I want to sell a million. So that means I have to have all of my stuff that gets from, you know, basically manufacturing the big pen into a million customers' hands working really well. I have to have my manufacturing working well, my logistics working well, my quality control working well, my sales team working well, so that that's the velocity. How many times can I make that wheel spin so I can sell as many of those big pens as possible? So return, when we think about that, this is where I, I talk to people who are in quality control, in customer excellence, in processing, in continuous improvement, in platform regeneration, um, anything to do with getting the, the company to work smarter, to work in a more streamlined way, in a more cost-effective way to have that velocity working. So that's what return is all about. And the three are all great, but unless you pay attention to the fourth one, which is customer and people, well, you've got a very short-lived business. Michelle, this is really great information and it's a little bit overwhelming. I think that we're going to have some listeners here that are curious, but they're probably going to want some like simple takeaways. What can our listeners do to start learning a little bit more and applying it to their leadership? The very first thing they need to do is to read No Ceiling, No Walls and particularly Leading for Outcomes. Page 95, show them the money, financial acumen. Uh, that will give you the absolute basics. So that's number one. Uh, number two is, you said the right word there, Mel, is get curious. Don't be don't be shying away from it. There, there are so many people who want to help you be really, really good with your financial acumen. So things that you can do in your organisation. Um, many of, oh, I know one of my major clients um, in the CFO's office, they offer a, a monthly briefing on the finances. So they just do a lunch and learn every month. Figure out what your company's got. And if they haven't got it, suggest it. As I said, your CFO and your financial partners will be going, awesome, captive audience to talk about the financials. So find out what your company's got in terms of learning the, the numbers in the context of your organisation. Get curious. As I said, if your company's listed, go onto the investor page, go onto the website and look at investors. And there is so much information there. If your company's not listed, go to your finance partner and say, I want to get better at financial acumen. Will you help me? Here's what I've identified. And then obviously come and join a career that source because we've got some really groovy stuff that is not overwhelming, that is really practical and useful to help you build your financial acumen. So there's my tips. I love it. And in No Ceiling, No Walls, Susan used the example of Anne Mulcahy. She's the former 
CEO of Xerox, and she talks about these extraordinary financial outcomes that Anne created as the CEO. And she was actually a podcast guest. So Susan interviewed Anne. If you go way back to season one, you can hear that interview. That's another great resource, I think. Wonderful story. And my final piece of advice is it is never too early and it is never too late to build, develop and demonstrate your financial acumen. Dear listeners, I was 40 years old when I had that epiphany. So you can teach an old dog new tricks and I am still an old dog and still learning new tricks. So please, please, please have that mindset shift. Get curious about money, your own and your organisations and do something about it. I love it. Never too old, never too young and do something about it. Thank you so much, Michelle. My pleasure. Thank you for downloading Lead to Soar. We so appreciate your support in the form of subscribing, rating, and reviewing the Lead to Soar podcast. We especially appreciate when you share Lead to Soar with friends and colleagues. Lead to Soar is hosted and produced by Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher. To get in touch with either, visit michelleredfern.com and melbutcher.com. Lead to Soar is a production of A Career That Soars. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Until next time, stay focused and lead on.